Hello there. We have arrived at the final episode of season two of Human Nurture. I'm Jason Brand, your host, a PAC Level 3 therapist out of Berkeley, California, and what a journey this has been. Pandemic, shelter in place, telehealth, three couples, and a whole lot of consultant interviews. And we made it. So before we begin the episode, the disclaimer, while we'll be discussing clinical material, this isn't a substitute for therapy or clinical advice. It's here for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you or someone you know is struggling, please seek the help of a licensed couples therapist. Let's start with the idea that couples choose each other based on familiarity and that much of that familiarity is beneath the conscious level of understanding. In addition, as couples begin to recognize each other as deep family, we tend to go for what we know, meaning that we act in our current couple relationship based on our earlier templates and experience. So our family histories and what we went through in our earlier lives. Add to that the high stress situations that come along with adult life. And that when we get into these high stress situations, we get dysregulated. We get mad, we scream, we yell, we shut down, we get paralyzed, we ice out, we collapse. And it's often in this repetition of dysregulation that a couple comes into therapy and they're worried that they'll never be able to explain their heart to their partner and that their partner will never be able to unlock the defenses that guard their heart. So in this episode, we'll be taking into account all the challenges that come along with deeply depending on another person in a couple relationship and ask, how do I help Charlie and Yael reveal the vulnerable reasons that they chose each other in a way that sets them up for secure functioning. So I'm fortunate enough today to have my colleague, Krista Jordan, along with me. Krista did a deep, deep dive into the Charlie and Yale material, and she came back with some thoughts and ideas that I just really love. So let's start by listening to Krista's message to Charlie and Yale. Hi guys, I'm Krista Jordan. I'm a psychologist and a PAC therapist in Austin, Texas. First, I want to thank you so much for your courage and your openness to allow me to review your sessions. That's so brave and wonderful. I really appreciate the trust you've placed in me in letting me into your marriage. I do believe that our marriage is our most prized and sacred space. I got into PAC therapy because I didn't know how to have a healthy relationship myself. My husband and I hung in there through sheer stubbornness and a truly irrational love of each other. But we battered and bruised our relationship for the first eight years, despite seeking lots of help. When I found Dr. Tatkin's work, it led us on a deeper journey where we were really able to get to the roots of our attachment wounds so that we could grow and heal. We're coming up on our 22nd anniversary, and I'm convinced that the work we did with PACT is what allowed us to achieve that milestone. So I know both personally and professionally how hard it can be to unwire old patterns from childhood and rewire the healthy patterns we need to really thrive in marriage. I really identified with the level of love that you guys have for each other. I asked my daughter once what, if anything, she wanted to replicate about our marriage in her own someday. And she said, I want to love someone as much as you love dad. And I want to be loved as much as he loves you. But I don't want to argue as much as you guys argue. I really see that deep profound and even sometimes giddy love that you guys have for each other. And that really resonates with me. I want that for all my couples. And it's so lovely to see that even amongst the strife, you guys can still drop back into that butterfly in the stomach feeling for each other. I also really resonated with how Yael holds back at times and tends to be oriented to focus on the other, because as a younger person, that was a huge struggle for me. And like Yael, I had a strong father who could be intimidating at times. And I picked a husband who also has a lot of strength. So the challenge is not to confuse the husband who can be strong, but ultimately reasonable, with the father who was strong and perhaps at times unreasonable. Your deep love for each other is great, but I always tell couples love is necessary, but an insufficient ingredient for a lifetime partnership. This is where the rubber meets the road for you to continue to dig in as you have done and get to the deeper levels of understanding about where you miss each other. As partners, we're here to heal each other's childhood wounds. As I see it, Charlie lacked a consistent sense of emotional safety and security so Yael can heal that by providing it in deep and reliable ways. Yael was wounded by not being seen enough, by having to make herself small and having to caretake people who should have been taking care of her. So Charlie will need to both take care of her and help her feel supported 
but also push her to use her big girl voice to ask her what she needs. He can also remind her not to take over his emotions too much. Let him sort them out. It's a delicate balance because we want her to care about him and care for him, but not to the neglect of herself. To get Krista and I warmed up, I played her a clip from the very first interview with Charlie and Yael, where Yael is rubbing Charlie's hand, and they're trying to figure out who she's doing it for. Is she doing it for him, or is she doing it for herself? Let's listen in on that clip. Like, it feels awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Some sort of like... Like, uh, I don't know. But cool. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's what the finger... T- is that nerves? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. Like, I guess that I'm like doing it to comfort you, but really to comfort you myself. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Doing it to comfort you, but really doing it for myself. What, what is, do you know, what does Yael mean by that, Charlie? Um, I guess to help me relax a little bit more as, as we're doing this. Um, but also to, I think that while you, while I relax, you kind of relax too. I don't know if you're kind of like, uh, Try to bring the pressure down by if you help others, you're kind of helping yourself at the same time. Would I don't know. Is that kind of onto that? Um, I don't know. Yeah, no. No, I guess I'm not thinking about you that much. I'm thinking, I feel just weird. So then I'm just like trying to relax myself. Like, I don't think that you are feeling weird. Hmm. Maybe you do, but not as weird as I feel. So it is just to comfort yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It just so yeah. happens. But it looked it like I'm comforting you. Yeah. <laughs> Did you catch at the end there? Charlie says deception. Oh, I didn't hear that. Okay. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 I would say adaptation, not deception. Uh-huh. But just, I mean, I get a little chills thinking about it in that it really, you get the sense that it was the first time that he understood what was happening from a different perspective from more from what's going on internally for Yael. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's been hard for him to really fully mentalize her and I can see him progressing in that over the course of the work. And, you know, I think on one level, she's very expressive, like her face and her gestures and her vocal intonation. There's a lot of expressivity there. But the the deeper, I think, more vulnerable feelings, especially feelings that she might have some shame around, I think are harder for her to really express. And so I think he's, you know, it, it's going to be an interactive process that he can increase his capacity to mentalize her. Um, but she also is going to have to provide more material that he can mentalize, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's totally normal, right? I mean, that, that we, we figure this out as we go along. Nobody comes with this already understood. People don't come with owner's manuals. I mean, if they did, our lives would be a lot easier. Um, we don't come with our own and our partners don't come with them either. So we have to, in real time, learn about ourselves and learn about the other. Mm-hmm. We choose each other. And we don't really know the reasons why we chose each other. So there's this familiarity and sort of the code underneath is not really exposed to us in the beginning. Oh my gosh. I think if we understood why we really chose our partners, we'd be terrified because our partners represent this opportunity to go back into some of the most painful parts of our development and hopefully rework the problem in a way that feels so much better. You know, we have all of these pain points in our development where we didn't have the skills to really be able to manage what was going on in us, around us, between us and other people. And we muddled through, but it felt uncomfortable. And I think when we meet people out in the wild as young adults, we're sort of looking for opportunities to go back into those difficult places and come with a different outcome. And I think if we were, if we were really conscious of that while we were dating, we'd be terrified because it's like, I always tell people I survived my childhood once. I don't really want to go back and have to do it again, but we don't have a choice. That's the repetition compulsion. It's just a part of how humans are organized that we are going to go back and try to do it again. And, and, and can we take ownership of that? And can we see it as 
a positive opportunity for growth. And it also, I think, gives us, I don't know, maybe some grace with each other in that we can't know until we enact it. We mm -hmm. can't know it. We can't name it. We can't learn right. about it until it actually happens and you get upset or you get hurt or you get scared. Mm -hmm. You can't play this out in some sort of game theory or something. It has to happen in real time. Yeah, because it's all unconscious. And so we can't know the unconscious, right, until something triggers it and causes a reaction. I can think of so many things that I have learned about myself over the course of my marriage that I would have never learned if I hadn't been in an intimate partnership because they were pieces of myself that I wasn't particularly excited to learn about. I, I was uncomfortable, you know, really taking a hard look at myself, but then my husband would trigger some of those shortcomings, which our shortcomings are our defenses, right? The defense was my best strategy in childhood with the limited repertoire that I had to deal with a situation. So let's say my defense is to bully people, right? Mm -hmm. So my husband may do something in adulthood that triggers this defense I have of becoming a bully. And then he gives me some feedback that he really doesn't appreciate it when I bully him. Well, now I have to really look at this part of myself that, that I have kept hidden from myself because I don't want to think of myself as a bully, but uh-oh, right here, right now, I'm seeing it. My partner's reflecting it back to me. He's holding up that mirror and I'm seeing this part of myself and maybe in childhood being a bully was the best thing I could come up with and maybe it kept me safe. But in adulthood now, it's costing me in my intimate relationship with my husband because he's not going to want to get close to someone who bullies him. So without being married, I might be able to move through the world and nobody would ever give me that feedback because people have to put up with me 24 hours a day like he does. And you're also calling referencing that, you that you're an adult now. Yeah. That this happens within an adult context. So you have oh, yeah. the capacity. I mean, there's the, the burden that you're carrying is, is great. You have... You have to manage your household. You have to go to work. You have kids. You have, you know, God forbid you have illness or you have, you know, things that are happening. But at the same time, you have adult capacities that allow you to do this reflection thing that you're talking about where you see, okay, he, they, she is getting really mad at me right now because I'm acting as a bully or I'm collapsing or I'm being passive aggressive, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that I can see two things. One is that I have my adult capacities. And two, at a certain point, we go, wait a minute, this is not productive, helping us move forward. If we're going to, if we're really going to fix this, if we're really going to help each other here, we're going to have to organize around something bigger than just our grievances with each other. We're going to have to do something different. Yes. We are going to have to do something different, which means I am going to have to do something different. Mm -hmm. My mantra for a long time, when I was really trying to work on this in my own marriage, I leveraged my competitiveness. And I would say to myself, really, Krista, is this the best that you can do? And then I would think, I can do better. Uh -huh. And you know, so if I was being passive aggressive, let's say, and I would, you know, turn on my heel and walk out of the room. And then I would tell myself, this is the best that I can do. And I think, no, I can do better. Turn back around, go back in the room, give a better response. It's so funny because mine was... I, I would get into this thing where I knew I was right. I knew 100% that I was right. And then at a certain point, I got to a place where I started to question, well, maybe I'm not always right. Yeah. And then, so what I did, I went the complete other direction for a while in order to practice this. I said to myself, Jen is always right. No matter what she's saying, she is 100% right. And it actually was very helpful in me taking my imbalance in my rightness, what I thought yeah. was so right, and evening some of it out so that I could see that, you know, she's got her experience. She's got some really good things that I'm missing actually in the equation here. And if I'm really going to make it through this, we're going to have to think about it together. Yeah. You increase your cognitive flexibility, right? Just sort of by forcing yourself. It's like when you're on debate team and you have to switch sides all of a sudden. So let's bring secure functioning into this, because I think that there is a particular frame that we use as PAC therapists, because this is a rocky process, right? I mean, just helping yeah. people to, to untangle all of this, to get to know each other, to look at the past. I mean, all of this is, is fraught with all kinds of complications. And so we need a container, some organizing principles in order to put this together for couples. Ours is secure functioning. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what does secure functioning do to help this unfold in a way with some order and, and hopefully without too much hurt along the way. 
Yeah, I like to think about secure functioning as like guardrails, or sometimes I think of it like bowling bumpers. You know, when you go bowling and the kids put the bumpers up, it's something that's going to provide some limits. And we're going to say, we're going to operate within these limits. We're not going outside of these bounds, right? Mm -hmm. The bounds are fairness, Mm -hmm. justice, mutual power. What's good for you is good for me. We tell each other everything. We're the go-to people for each other. These principles of secure functioning. And I think if both people can agree that those are going to serve the greatest good, then being able to hold oneself to that allows these guardrails. And it's not that you're never going to go outside the guardrail, because sometimes you will. Sometimes you'll do something selfish and that violates the principle of fairness. But you're going to know that you went outside the guardrail because you know the guardrail is there, right? If the guardrail is not there, how do you know you've gone outside of it? So it gives you some awareness of when you're breaking protocol and then you bring yourself back in and you do your repair work. So I feel like it gives everybody a really clear idea of what we're expecting of each other, what's good for each of us, how we're going to go about creating this relationship, what our rule book is. And then again, because no one's perfect, you're sometimes going to violate that, but you are aware that you violated it. Mm, and I think yeah. that gives a certain amount of a sense of security mm-hmm. to both parties. Charlie talked about, he said, I want to be right sometimes. <laughs> I want to just be right sometimes. In couples therapy, a muscle begins to develop, which is your ability to get out of these old places of like, you know, of hurt and I've got to be right. And seeing, wait a minute, there's a dual picture here. There's a sort of binocular vision as opposed to looking through a microscope at this one little thing. There's a binocular vision here that we're both trying to hold on to. Do you agree that this is a muscle that couples begin to kind of work and flex and and use? Absolutely. I mean, I think unfortunately our culture is really tilted in the direction of thinking about the self. And so the idea that the, the coupleship would supersede the self is not something that's really talked about in our culture. We have a lot of idealistic, romantic versions of coupleship that you're going to fall in love with someone and it's going to be perfect, like a soulmate, and you'll never have a problem. But that's not real. The reality is that we always have a self and the self is always going to have its needs and wants. And that often that's going to come into conflict with the coupleship. And there has to be a willingness to subjugate the self to the coupleship. And I really don't think we get a lot of training in subjugation in our current culture. Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah, I think we used to. I think, you know, back when people pledged themselves to kings or countries or even religions, there was a sense that subjugation was a noble thing. I think nowadays, if you surveyed people, I wouldn't be surprised if people thought the idea of subjugating yourself was crazy. Because you should be looking out for yourself. But marriage requires subjugation. We do it, the easier it gets, to your point about the muscle, right? Mm-hmm. Because at first, there's this fear. If I subjugate myself, I won't get my needs met. And of course, if you grew up in an insecurely attached environment, that was true. But when you start flexing that muscle and you start realizing, oh, if I take care of the relationship, I do get my needs met, mm-hmm. ultimately, then you feel more confident about doing that. And the more you do it, the more confident you are because it works. You're right on it, which is that people start to worry, well, if I subjugate myself to my partner, Mm -hmm. then they're going to walk all over me. They're going to, you know, they're just going to, I'm giving them- Take advantage. Take advantage of it. Exactly. And that's a marker of insecurity because insecures expect unfair and unjust treatment because that's what they were exposed to. Insecures, by definition, their parents were too insensitive, which means that too often, I mean, no parent is perfectly attuned all the time, but in an insecure parenting relationship, too often the parent took their own needs into consideration over that of the child. And the child felt that it was insensitive and unfair. And so then, of course, that's what they expect in their coupleships. 
let's go ahead and have a Charlie about this rightness business. I went back and I watched the second session over again last night. And I really watched the little piece where Yael was able to really emote and talk about something that felt important to her. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't tell, and I tried speeding up the tape to see if I could amplify this, but I still couldn't tell whether or not he was holding his breath. But my somatic counter-transference watching it was I was holding my breath when I was watching him watching her. And he did very subtly a little tiny down into the right, which it could easily have been down into the left. It just happened it was down into the right, which I'm reading as a shame drop. And I started to have this fantasy that I'm Charlie and I'm this little kid and his mom is reading in the riot act about something. And now I don't really know much about his history. So I don't know that this even happened, mm -hmm. but I started to put together this picture of when Yell comes forward and wants to share something that she's frustrated about. It looks a little bit like he maybe dissociates a tiny bit. His face, like he's not very expressive to begin with, but his face sort of becomes less expressive. It felt like some breath holding and a shame drop. And I just felt like, oh, I wonder if this is why it's so important, why he wants to be right sometimes, why he gets defensive when she bring th brings things up and why he's so interested in self-improvement. Because if I improve myself before you criticize me, then you can't criticize me. If I'm always working on myself, then you can't tell me that I need to change something because I'm already on it, mm -hmm. right? It's like offense. It's and so it's a wish for a shortcut to having to figure it out with the other person. Does that sound right? Well, I think it's just pure defensiveness. And I don't, and I, let me say, first of all, that like, I don't, defenses get a bad rap. I mean, they're just our way of trying to deal with something that's painful. But we have to sort of take a look at the cost, right? And and the cost benefit analysis of the defense. Mm -hmm. So if Charlie's defense around feeling uh, vulnerable to criticism, which provokes a feeling from childhood of being trapped and shamed, if his defense against that is to be relentless in his self-improvement, we can see a benefit to that, becomes a better person. Mm -hmm. The cost is, can he ever relax? Mm. Like I saw a really big reaction in Charlie, when you made the statement, enough with the self-improvement, you're good enough as you are. And I saw this look of relief wash over him mm -hmm. and he teared up. And so that made me wonder, like, is that the cost of this relentless pursuit of self-improvement is the feeling that I'm never good enough and the anxiety and the stress behind that, mm -hmm. never being able to just relax, be at ease with himself. Yeah. And that's what Yale reports is that she really, you know, wants to be able to just be with him in a relaxed way, especially mm -hmm. out in the environment with their family. Yeah. She's a bit wavish. And of course, waves love to talk, number one, but they also tend negative. So what are the odds that Yale is going to bring things to him that have a negative tint? I mean, with a wave, that's a high probability. Uh-huh. And the, uh -huh. the trick to manage, I mean, one of the tricks to managing, in my opinion, a wave partner is being able to just let that wash over you and not have it be personal. Mm -hmm. But Charlie has this vulnerability, I think, where he may, if I'm theorizing, right, drop into this child position. He's now back in childhood and his mom is haranguing him about something and he's feeling shame and kind of stuff. It's a projection, of course, how to help him differentiate a wavish partner who will have a tendency to complain and it's kind of how they go and it's not personal and to allow her to do that so she can feel heard and validated that her experiences are important, right? That was the thing, the line from dad and mom, mm -hmm. my experiences weren't important. So he needs to be able to be present for her while she's doing this and not take it personally. But that's again, because of the history going to be a challenge for him. Mm -hmm. That's his growth edge there. Yeah, For just, her to be able to do it and see that he might be uncomfortable, but not feel like she needs to pull back because her sensitivity to tuning into the other and caretaking the other, if she starts to, un, you know, sort of do her wavish download with him about some things that she's frustrated about and do some talking about vaguely negative things, annoying things, frustrating things, and she begins to track that he's having trouble, she's going to pull back. Yeah. And she pulls back in a particular way. She belittles her experience so much in the sessions. And she says, you know, well, I just want these little things like the house to be tidy in a particular way. I want things to be folded in a particular way. And she has real trouble saying, well, there's some, there's something that's connected to something deeply for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That getting small kind of a thing that the mm -hmm. waves do. I'm just mm -hmm. going to make myself small so that I won't get into trouble because I need to focus on you and you, 
you're not going to focus on me. I'm just going to shrink. Mm-hmm. But then there's the problem is there's resentment with shrinking. That's inevitable. That's human. Huh. And that can create a feeling of distance. Can you link that to her saying, you know, I soothe you, but really I'm soothing myself? Oh, that, that- was so painful. Um, that was so touching. Yeah. So the wavish dilemma is I have a parent who can't stay appropriately regulated and engaged. So I have to be the regulator in this dynamic. Mm-hmm. I have to sense when you have capacity and when you don't. And I have to prop you up if I, you know, in, in various ways and attune to you. And in doing that, I get to maintain proximity. And proximity is the ultimate goal of the attachment system. So I get proximity, but I don't really get seen, but I'm going to trade it off because proximity is better than nothing. But then I'm going to feel frustrated because I feel like I want proximity and I also want to be seen. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the angry and the resistant part of the style, right? So I feel angry that I'm not being, that I'm having to trade proximity for being seen. I want both and I deserve both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like the proximity piece that you're talking about is that it's a, it's a way for her to have a kind of closeness. I mean, she stays there and she kind of chirps a little bit. You know, she says, she says, I want this to be this way. I wish you would be this way. And, but she doesn't really name her experience and come forward and say, I need to be able to rely on you in this way. And it hurts me. And here's why it hurts me and have the full emotional experience. That's really, that's really there. She doesn't, she doesn't get that opportunity to be able to do that with Charlie enough. Yeah, I've had these fantasies of having her practice it, of having her sort of stand up to like activate her large muscles in big gestures and big voice. They, this is what I need. Mm-hmm. Right? And damn it, you're going to give it to me. Uh-huh. And I deserve this. You know? uh-huh. And then having him deliberately respond with delight. And, and, and he intuitively did this. Like when she did emote after after he, I think, went into his childhood reaction where he stilled and he did a shame drop and, oh, and he did some interesting things with his hands, kind of a, self, a self-soothing self kind of um, stereotypey stuff. Mm. After that, he came back, he came back into full presence and he gave her delight. He said, you came alive. I love this. I want you to have this. So that's mm-hmm. in him. It's in him to be delighted with her bigness. But mm-hmm. his initial response was, you know, to go into the childhood reaction, I think. And then mm-hmm. you had to kind of climb out of it. Gosh, I would say that's true for all of us. I got worried in that time I stopped her because she was, she started to go into a lot of detail and I stopped her. I noticed that Charlie, as she started to go into the detail, I watched Charlie glaze over. Mm-hmm. And I thought that Charlie would do better with just the raw emotion. My read on that, I mean, certainly sometimes people who are islandy and he does seem to have an island component get lost in the verbiage, but he's very verbal. So my take on it was more that 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 sort of like pulling back or going away or stilling a little bit was more that he was starting to feel shame. Okay. Basically picking like this was wrong and this was wrong and this was wrong. And again, this is this challenging intersection because she feels like she's not allowed to have needs. So if she's going to bring them forward, she's going to bring a body of evidence, right? We're in court now. And mm-hmm. this is my, my lawyer presentation, right? Of why I deserve to have these needs. And that, if, I'm, if my hypothesis is right, that can take him back to this place of feeling criticized in childhood. Here are all the ways in which you're not measuring up. Let's play around with what we know a little bit about why he would go into a shame place. He was a guy who was left. Oh, I know. In some really scary places. Yeah. So no, no internalized sense of safety, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, no internalized sense of home base. Yell has that. Certainly all parents are not perfect. So her parents, you know, there were certain things they struggled with. But you hear this real sense of internalized safety when she talks about like, yeah, if things get a little crazy, I know how to make it seem okay for the kids. And I know that in the end, it's all going to be okay. Mm-hmm, right? So that's right. this internalized sense of, of home base and of safety that things can get a little chaotic, but there's something underneath that's firm. Like I have this platform I'm standing on and the air around me can be swirling, but my feet are on a platform. 
with Charlie's history, you know, I don't know him, but what I would predict with a, a kid who goes through that much changing of caregivers and unsafe environments, it doesn't feel like there's a platform. And let's connect that to shame. I mean, that that leads to shame because at a certain point, being in those in those unsafe places where the bottom falls out, eventually you have to turn back on yourself, right? I mean, I I, I think that that would be a logical conclusion would be that I must have done something wrong or I must be bad that keeps people from wanting to come take care of me, help me when I'm in these overwhelming situations. Sure, yeah, kids naturally will assume that they have done something wrong and then there's that internalized sense of badness which can easily lead to feeling shame prone. And then Yael had said something about not wanting to sound like his mom and she was saying it in the vein of like, as though his mom maybe said critical things. So again, I don't know his history, but Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. From a child's egocentric developmental perspective, if I'm not getting the care I need, it's because I'm not a good enough kid. So we have a base for shame there. And then if we did have parents or caregivers who were also critical, children's egos are very fragile. And so it's easy to wound them. They're quite aware of their vulnerabilities. And when we sort of point out their vulnerabilities, what a lot of adults forget is kids already know. They already know they're little. Mm. They already know they don't know how to drive a car. They know they don't know how to pay taxes. Mm -hmm. And so when we start pointing out that they didn't clean up their room or they didn't feed the dog or they didn't brush their teeth, it's like insult to injury if it's not done with sensitivity. So there could be a myriad of reasons, you know, that there's that tendency to to drop into shame. The beautiful thing is about working in couples, shame needs to be healed by being seen by the other. Mm -hmm. And so in those moments, if he does a shame drop to be able to say, oh, hey, can we pause right here? Charlie, can you look into Yell's eyes and really connect, not just look as in I'm dissociated look, but really look and do you, what do you see on her face right now about how she feels about you? That's the corrective piece because what he should see is she still loves me. Mm-hmm. She's frustrated that I didn't let her sleep this morning, but she's smiling at me. Her face looks relaxed. I see love in her eyes, right? And oh, so my feeling that I was being criticized might not be true. Let's take a step back. I mean, so you you caught this, what you thought was shame drop. Now I'm imagining in the session with them, if you're working with them or a couple like them, you're going to name that shame drop. You're going you're gonna to find out what's going on there. Yeah, I would cross it to Yale and I would say, oh, we stopped. Did you see something right there, Yale? And mm-hmm. if she saw it, great. She would say, yeah, I saw it. Okay, tell me what you saw. What do you think that was? If she didn't see it, I go, no big deal. Things move fast. Mm-hmm. I think I might've seen something that looked like a head drop. Let's check in and see how are you feeling right now, Charlie? Mm-hmm. And if he can't name it, I might say, I'm not quite sure. And I certainly could be wrong, but I'm wondering if some shame came up. And then there's the corrective emotional experience is to be able to see it in the other person's eyes. We can imagine for Charlie and Yale that having Yale hold the experience mm-hmm. might bring up a lot of feeling for Charlie. And this brings us to, man, do I not want to cry? Yes. Yeah. And sorry, Charlie, but that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And certainly not to torture anybody, but because, again, part of what I imagine might have been deficient in Charlie's history was this feeling that at any point, if I fall apart, there is a capable, loving adult nearby that can quickly and smoothly swoop in and scoop me up and help me regulate. And I imagine from what I've heard so far that it was inconsistent. And so what that means is there were times that he fell apart because all children fall apart, right? Um, Frequently. (laughs) Babies cry a lot. Toddlers have meltdowns. So all kids fall apart pretty regularly. And there would have been probably more times than we would like that there was no one to really swoop in quickly and effectively regulate him. Mm -hmm. And so he was alone in his own distress. And so that's that lack of a platform that he can stand on, right? Mm -hmm. 
And then that can lead to a lot of feelings of insecurity and fear or about safety and security and need to scan the environment and stay tough and stay strong, don't get vulnerable. And if he can allow himself even a little bit every now and then to fall apart and she can do that, swooping in, scooping him up, helping him regulate, mm. begins to build that sense of a secure base that he's lacking. You say, sorry, Charlie, because he's, there's going to be a part of him that's really going to resist this from happening. We, we've heard that in a bunch of the sessions. Yeah. He said that there is a part of him that isn't sure he wants to cry mm -hmm. in session. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how he feels about crying outside a session, but at the very least, he's sort of said, yeah, I keep telling myself I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to fall apart. I'm not going to cry. I'm going to keep it together. And then, of course, he can't because we're human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've been charting a progression of this. In the first interview, it was about that it's going to be listened to publicly mm -hmm. and that he kind of didn't want to sound like a punk or a bitch, mm -hmm. you know, was sort of the, the way that he said it. And and that seemed like one layer to me. I mean, that seems real and that's, and that's got to be yeah. looked at, especially considering his history where looking like a punk, it sounds like there were some very sort of masculine, scary kind of yep. environments that he was put into where you really had to put on front in order to survive. So that's one layer to it. Layer number two is that that he begins to swell with it to the point where he loses Yael's experience. That was in the second one. He says, he says, hey, you know, I, I, I'm not afraid necessarily to show emotion. However, when I do that, then you, Yael, get, oh, you have to, you have this feeling of trying to have to manage me so much. You have to, you have to now, your experience goes away and I don't get to hear your experience anymore. You can edit this out, but I call bullshit. I was going to say, do you call bullshit? And, and here's why. I mean, first of all, he doesn't know that he's defending. We don't, our defenses are unconscious and reflexive, right? Uh -huh. um, so he's not doing this on purpose. But Yao was at least, at least to my ear, and of course I have very limited exposure to these people, to the degree that I could hear in the material I was provided, she had a very specific complaint about having to manage him. It's when he gets angry. She never said anything about, about having to manage his tears. Mm -hmm. She never said, oh, I bring things to you and then you fall apart and cry and then I have to take care of you. Now, that's, that is something that some people do. That's called defensive crying. Mm -hmm. That's the, I bring something to you and you go, I was trying my hardest and I don't know what you want from me, right? We've all met mm -hmm. those people and they're very annoying. Um, that... I, his crying isn't defensive. And so I would be surprised, although it's possible, if she felt burdened by it. And so, so what you're saying here is that it's another way of defending against falling apart in front of Yale. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that that would require a kind of trust in the relationship, like you said, that kind of that somebody's there going to be there fast enough to swoop in and not make me feel alone in this situation. Yes, absolutely. And not make me feel bad for crying. I mean, I'd be very curious, some of the PAI stuff about like, when you were little and you fell apart, you know, what happened? Was there anyone mm -hmm. there? Mm -hmm. So some boys get raised that you're not supposed to cry, mm -hmm. right? Um, so he may have gotten messages that, you know, if he started crying, you know, stop now or I'll give you something to cry about or hey your you know boys don't cry mm -hmm. there could be messages that he has that that take him back into shame about crying I'm not quite sure but I would definitely speculate that he just doesn't have that basic trust that yeah. the other can be there fast enough good enough consistently enough to make it worth the vulnerability to make it worth the risk I've been thinking a lot about this with Charlie and Yale and what you will hear. And I, I got to say, I mean, I feel this way sometimes too, is that is being very gender specific here, that there's always a push that women say, we want you to cry in front of us. <laughs> we want you to show that emotion. <laughs> and for men that there's this feeling of like, yeah, but you don't really want me to, you don't really want to see these emotions from me. And if I show this, I don't know. I just, I, it's not going to go well. And it's, we're going to, 
I mean, I don't even know what's on the other side of that, but I know that for many men, and myself included, it's very hard to cry. And crying feels like something that's just sort of out of bounds. I agree. It's a real bind for men. And it's tragic, in my opinion, because we're all hardwired to cry. It's not like men are born without tear ducts, you know. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Mother Nature intended for you guys to cry. And you derive all the benefits from crying that women do. But, you know, I think it is really hard for men. I I would say, I mean, the corollary is women aren't supposed to be angry, right? So mm-hmm. Charlie can say to Yale, I want you to have your feelings. And even if you're mad, I want to be able to express it, right? Yes, because I think I've seen it that once she does get upset, he can get to a place to be proud of her for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I say it's a corollary because women, if they express anger, are castrating or bitchy or harpy. We have all these mm-hmm. sort of words in our language for the angry woman, right? Uh-huh. Which is like the... It's the thing you're not supposed to be as the woman, just like men are not supposed to fall apart and be all sad. I mean, if he brings that up, I would say, well, Yell probably is worried about being seen as a bitchy woman. But when she expresses her frustrations and anger, you're proud of her. I wonder if she'd be proud of you for crying, too. What's healthy, in my opinion, is being able to be a full human being and have the full range of emotions. And I understand our culture gives us all kinds of other messages, but I think in mental health, we're trying to say what is true, not not what is culturally sanctioned. Mm-hmm. What I think is true is humans need to have the full range of emotions. And this goes back to what we talked about, about secure functioning, that within a secure functioning relationship, we should be able to really show each other. We should have the experience of the full lexicon of our emotions, right? And, and so there were times, and I guarantee you that if, you know, if Charlie really falls apart, or really falling apart isn't even the right word. If he really lets his tears flow, if he really lets it, lets, you know, feels the amount of trust that it would require for you to hold that for him, he'll never forget that. Yes. He'll never forget that experience. Right. Yeah, this is that corrective emotional experience. And I'd say uh, to your point, I think, which is really true about the anger, I think that if Yael really felt validated in her anger and really was able to just connect to that in a place of not feeling like she's nagging or harping or you know whatever it is that's there and that she really just connected with her anger that that would feel like a high watermark for her in terms of wow I was really in my feelings in a in a in a successful way within this couple relationship and they were tolerated mhm and I didn't damage the relationship and I didn't diminish myself mhm I mean, that's that's a right down the middle. Can they be the full range of their human experience in the presence of each other without feeling that their relationship or the self is in jeopardy? Mm -hmm. That's home. When you can do that, you have a home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Say that one more time. It was beautiful. If you got it on the tip of your tongue, do you have it again? When you can experience the full range of human emotion in the presence of your partner without fear of damaging the relationship or diminishing yourself, you have a home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's home. Mm-hmm. That's safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a beautiful picture you're painting. And I, I'm, and I really see where you're picking out the areas, Charlie's not wanting to fall apart. Yael saying, you know, I need to take care of you. It's it's really a sort of truncated, this is the agreement that we've made within this relationship to how much we're able to really be safe and secure with each other. I, I feel a lot, unfortunately, like we make these unconscious pacts with our partner early in the relationship, which goes something like this. I'm going to put up with some of the pain I had in childhood to avoid the possibility of feeling even more disappointed by you. So in this situation, Charlie's is, I'm going to put up with the pain in childhood of not getting the support I really need by being truly vulnerable. Because if I were truly vulnerable, I would risk you failing at that. And then I would feel even more disappointment because now I have experienced it in childhood and I'm experiencing it again in adulthood. And Yael would be, I'm going to put up with the pain of not being fully seen and not feeling fully validated because I don't want to risk the pain of trying it 
and having you, Charlie, not tolerate it. And so it requires so much bravery to say, screw it. I'm all in. I'm throwing down. I'm going to try it. And I hope you don't fail me. I'm really getting a sense of here is, is you're relating to Yael in certain ways in terms of what she went through. Can you put into words how Yael doesn't get to know her own feelings very well? Sure. I mean, we learn about the self in relation to the other, right? Mm -hmm. The baby sees itself by looking at the mother and seeing themselves reflected in the eyes of the mother or the father, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we only explore ourselves and our own mind and our own hearts by being in relation to another. And when that relationship is lopsided, where the parent needs the child to provide regulation and maintenance of the relationship because the parent is not developed enough to do that, then the child is basically elevated to this adult role where they're doing all this relationship upkeep. And that doesn't provide any energy for them to explore their own inner world and share that with this caregiver. And through that back and forth, dipping into the self, sharing it with the other, seeing it reflected in the other, taking that back into the self. This is the interactive feedback loop through which we explore ourselves in childhood. Mm -hmm. But that requires that we have a caregiver who can do all the maintenance work on the relationship to free us up mm -hmm. to explore our own selves. If we're using all of our energy to make sure that our caregiver is okay, and if mom's having big feelings, I, I know what I need to do to make sure that the day goes okay. Or if dad has certain expectations, I know I have to manage those expectations and, and, and walk the straight line. That's taking up my resources and I don't have the energy to do that inner exploration of self and bring it to the other and have them available to then reflect it back to me. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? It does. And I think you just did a really nice job of, of explaining her history with her parents. And then with Charlie, we get the sense that, that it's been very helpful for her to fill this role for Charlie over time, to be the one who comes in and says, well, let me ground you and help you see that you don't need to worry so much. Mm -hmm. That has been a boon to Charlie's life. I mean, just to be able to have that. The problem is that Yell then doesn't get to practice enough of the, well, what are my feelings here? She gets so focused on Charlie that she doesn't have the opportunity to then go, wait a minute, I can put Charlie down for a moment in my mind. And I can just feel my own feelings here. What's going on for me? And I don't need to worry about him so much. So that sounds that we're both in agreement that that's right. I'm curious to hear your take on what has to happen for Yael in order to kind of get to know her feelings more. Does she do that with Charlie? Does she do that on her own? Where does that, do you, is, do, where does that come from? Ideally, you know, I always sort of think of things in terms of child development, because that's usually what we're trying to catch up with as adults, right, is things that didn't unfold properly in childhood. So you can kind of go back and say, okay, in children, how does this work? And then how can we bring that forward into the adult sphere? And again, in childhood, knowing the self is this reciprocal process of I might go outside and get excited by a frog I find and I run inside with my excitement and show my mom the frog. And then my mom's mm -hmm. like, oh my God, that's so cool. Let's look it up online and find out what kind of frog it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm exploring my enthusiasm and my excitement and watching her amplify it and feed it back to me in this interactive process. And so I want her to do it with Charlie, but it may be that in the beginning, this is going to, you might need to be sort of helping Charlie to make sure he can provide those contingent, you know, appropriate responses so that he doesn't somehow get triggered into his history and then provide her with a non-contingent response, which would make her go back into her childhood of feeling like she's not allowed to do this. Wait, so what do you mean by non-contingent response? A non -contingent, contingent response in the frog situation is just what I said. The mom's like, oh my God, that's so cool. A non-contingent response is that's gross. Get it out of the house. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, whatever. Have you done your homework? And so her explorations, how she wants the house to be organized or how she envisions their family should be. Yeah, tell me more about that, Yael. What does that sound like? That sounds really cool. What are your ideas about that? You right. I'm really excited about this. Right. As opposed to Charlie feeling like, oh, that sounds stressful. 
or that doesn't make any sense, or that's going to make me look wrong here and I'm feeling shame. And so therefore I need to push you down a little bit so that I don't have to feel these overwhelming feelings that he needs to really open up to that. Mm -hmm. That sounds right to me. I also think that there's something about Yael needing more permission to go and explore also. Is it frogs or is it bugs or is it the sky or is it climbing trees or whatever it is in the environment that she needs to kind of feel into in order to know that these are the things that I really like. These are the things that really turn me on and make me excited. Yeah, I remember how she was talking about as a teacher, she was talking to another teacher and the teacher said, well, how do you feel about that? And she said, I didn't know that I was allowed to have a feeling about it. I thought it, you just do it or you don't do it, right? Mm -hmm. Taps. You don't think and feel about it. So I completely agree that, you know, her development probably was a little thwarted in that area of really being able to explore what tickles her, what excites her, how does she feel about things? What does she like? What does she not like? And the more that Charlie can support that, this is how we reparent our, our partners, you know, mm -hmm. um, we help grow each other up in the, in the places that our development faltered. Yeah. And I'm imagining, you know, that her dad was at every one of her sporting events and she puts a, a high price or she get, feels a lot of reward from watching her students excel. And these seem like, I mean, these are wonderful areas to, yeah. and, and rich areas to explore in life, but they also seem like they're very culturally sort of sanctioned, like spaces right. where you're going to, where it's, you know, you're going to get a lot of praise for that. It seems like in those realms where, I don't know if anybody's actually going to find this cool. I don't know if anybody's going to like, you know, people are going to think I'm really weird if I do this, that those seem like maybe some of the areas where she's had less ability to kind of explore and probably some frustration, probably some sadness, probably a lot of feelings would come up in these places and to be able to tolerate her own ability to tolerate, wow, I don't feel very good at this or I feel weird doing it. And then like you're saying, also being able to bring it back to Charlie, Charlie being able to accept it. Wow, this is, you know, let's see what you found out there in the wild and let's make sense of it. Let's enjoy it for your sake. That seems like the area that, that would be very good for her and them to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In some ways, we're all young because we all have areas of our development that didn't unfold to the full degree that we would like. But they feel particularly young, maybe because they're actually quite a bit younger than me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it, it almost feels like the little kids in them are quite visible. The young Charlie and the young Yale seeking very close to the surface. And it's tough. Part of Charlie's eyes wide open, looking for the right way to go about doing things especially for men, I think the, the, like the self-improvement thing becomes so alluring and you become so focused on that, that you can leave out a whole other range of experiences that aren't all about self-improvement. Again, I do think if he can start to feel that really secure platform of Yale being able to support him and not fall into shame that the mm -hmm. self-improvement stuff will feel less attractive to him. I think it's a compensation and a defense. I mean, right. in some ways, self-help books are the parents that we didn't have, right? Because they're mm -hmm. going to tell you, here's how you become a person in the world. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me that it sounds like he lacked some consistent parenting. It doesn't surprise me that he finds that appealing, but... The marriage will give him that. The marriage will teach him how to be a person in the world. I also think that there's another side to this, which is that I wonder for Yael, if she really wants a man, you know, like really knows the direction, because that's what she grew up with is a father who said, this is the way to do things. And I wonder if sometimes that she gets convinced that the right way to go about things is to just follow the guy who seems to have all the answers. Sure that that was part of the unconscious appeal, right? Mm -hmm. He's a strong man. Her dad was a strong man. But it also was a place for her to hide. You know, the wavish person is prone towards regression and staying small and not owning their full agency. So attaching yourself to a strong person is a way to hide out as a wavish person and not really progress in your own development. Mm -hmm. And this is another place where couples therapy is hard for, for people. It's exposing an area where Yale has some growing up to do. Yale has so many areas in her life, Charlie too, where 
he does so well. And it's like, can't we just focus on the areas where I'm really strong and make those really, really good? But actually, I think that there's a way that you have to look at these areas where you actually really haven't had the opportunity to give the attention and let go in certain ways of these areas where you've maybe even overdeveloped at, in, in order to compensate for some of these, some of the less mature areas. Yeah, I think of it almost anatomically, like if I've got scar tissue in a joint, I can build up all the muscles around the joint that I want and make them super powerful. But my range of motion is still going to be limited by the amount that the scar tissue can stretch, right? The mm -hmm. scar tissues are defenses. So adding to our strengths is not going to eradicate the defense. Mm -hmm. You have to get under the defense and heal the wound that the defense was designed to deal with. And that's how you increase functioning. And this is where them really getting to know each other in these areas where they they have they just have a lot of scar tissue and that's not easy to open that up and really look at it and let go of some of the areas where there's a lot of muscle built up and you say well look at me i'm i'm so big and strong in this area but also where the defenses come up charlie gets really angry or yale doesn't ask directly for what she wants and then gets angry um and resentful and so it's it's a it's this sort of teasing back these areas so that these guys can really get to know each other in a different kind of way. It's such a deep vulnerability that's required for healthy partnership. It, it astounds me that any of us do it really. <laughs> Although I'm so glad that we do because I tell people all the time, like if you really want personal growth, get partnered, get mm -hmm. partnered and take it seriously, pledge your life to someone and you'll, you'll see some kick-ass growth because if you don't, the relationship will fall apart. Mm-hmm. The only way to make the relationship last and be healthy is you're going to have to get down to the nitty gritty and root out all of your defenses and your insecurities and your childhood wounds and all your stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to work on it. It's painful and it's scary and it requires so much vulnerability. And the vulnerability often is you're going to let me down in the same way that these other people let me down. Exactly. And I'm going to be doubly lost because- right we bought a house together or we have a baby together or we've committed to each other in this deep kind of way. Well, this has been action-packed, Krista. Do you have other areas you want to touch on? I was trying to think of like, what did he recognize in Yael? You know, clearly she recognized the strong man idea that she could kind of tuck in behind. Yeah. So what did he recognize in her? potentially the critical mother because she has it if she's you know because she's wavish she has a tendency to maybe complain a little bit but also I wondered because she feels like and of course I don't know where you speak more to this she feels like a good mom mm -hmm. um, and so I wondered if he had experienced any positive mothering from his grandmother if there might have been some flicker of recognition of this is a person who maybe actually will love me and be there for me yeah I don't know the answer to that and and I get that sense too, that Charlie had, you know, he's got this really sort of interesting combination of clearly having some people in his corner that really fortified him in certain ways. So there's clearly some pockets of security there that he carries with him. And I don't know if it's his grandmother. I don't know if it's his dad in Mexico, who was a teacher. That's all I really know. I don't know if it's community-based in terms yeah. of, you know, some people that really held him together, but it does seem like there are some, there are some internal objects that were really quite supportive. And that I think that he really does see in Yale some parallels there. That, that's, that's my guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's my guess too. They're so mm -hmm. sweet. They are so I just, sweet. I just fell in love with them right away. Uh-huh. Yeah, me too. Me too. And there's just a... There's a gameness to them. Actually, it's kind of like I find with with you in this conversation is like, let's go, let's do this. I don't know if you saw that one of the interviews, they wanted to just keep going. I was exhausted. It was like nine o'clock at night. They've got a baby at home. They work these really intense jobs where they're really focused on people all day and, you know, just showing up for their students or Charlie as a barber. And then just want to keep going. And I'm just like, wow, you guys have a, an energy and a capacity for thinking about this stuff that I really admire. I really think this is, yeah. is really a testament to them. I also think it's their love for each other. Like, yeah. I think individually they have capacity for this and individually they're driven, but I think they also are crazy in love with each other and that will motivate you 
to fight mm-hmm. for it and keep yeah. going. Krista, thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate it. You, I love the way your mind moves, you know, when it comes to clinical and couple material. So just thank you for bringing all that to the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, that's it. Thank you. It feels like a hundred years ago, but Bart and Susan, thank you so much. Shakir and Ron, thank you. And of course, thank you to Charlie and Yell and to all the consultants. Your time and interest in the project were such a huge support. And I so look forward to collaborating with you in the future. And to you for listening. I've loved hearing from you. Please continue to reach out. Jason at jasonbrand.com. That's about it. Human Nurture, season two. We are out.